Welcome back to another great episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you don't know by now, my name is Christopher Brown and I will be your host today. Since the launch of the podcast, I've been asked the same thing. Why do you do this? And I give everyone the exact same answer. This podcast is about talking to people in an intimate setting and just having a discussion. Today, we often find ourselves becoming keyboard warriors and have forgotten the lost art of having a conversation. So with that in mind, I started this podcast to achieve one goal, get people talking again with no notes, no questions. I sit down with subjects to learn from them about them. Today, we continue our special series of episodes with the Green Party of Canada leadership candidates. And today I sit down with Glenn Murray. Glenn and I talk about his duty to serve, his 50 seat strategy for the next general election and what his plans are for the Green Party of Canada. So here now is Cross Border Interviews featuring Glenn Murray. Like I said, Glenn, I want to thank you very much for doing this. Greatly appreciate it. I, I start off all my interviews with the same question. You're no okay. exception. Where did your sense of duty come from? Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> I think uh, a lot of things, life circumstances, um, uh, everything in my life that's happened has always reminded me of how fortunate I am and how much of who we are and what we become is based on circumstance and things beyond our control. My mother used to always say to me, you know, you, you've got to do what you can do. You, 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 can't, you can't do everything, but you've got to do what you can do. Um, so I, I was adopted when I was about uh, two years old. Uh, and, and as I got older, I just realized the mathematical improbability of that. Um, and I, later in life when the AIDS crisis hit as a teenager in my 20s, I did a lot of street outreach work. So I was encountering, you know, hundreds of kids I was working with uh, who were in the child welfare system, which I was in and never got out of it. And the destruction that was often to their lives and uh, the reduced potential that, that, could, that, that can bring someone. And then... Um, when I was in my early teens, I realized I was gay and my father didn't talk to me for three years when he found out. Um, I also just realized at that time, which was uh, the 1970s, um, that was very limiting to anything I wanted to do in my life. Um, and then AIDS hit and took 43 of my friends in my 20s. Um, and those things were always reminders of vulnerability, confronting prejudice, uh, the luck of having a family or not having a family, the mathematical luck of being the only person in my um, in my community of friends uh, who wasn't HIV positive and survived uh, that epidemic uh, when most of my friends didn't. So I've always, I've always, and when I confronted my own mortality, I, I realized that most people live their life for the things they fear and the people they're afraid of. Pure pressure, all kinds of things distort who we are and prevent us from reaching our potential. But if you can live your life for the people you love and the things you hope for, you can transcend all of that. Um, and when you realize that you have very little time on this planet um, and you really want to make a difference and you see your life being measured by the love you leave behind when you're gone, 
all of a sudden you, for me, it was becoming supercharged in public service that I wanted to make the biggest difference I possibly could uh, in the lives of other people because my success in life had been a combination of sheer luck, the kindness of other folks, people, other people who cared about, about situations and other people, and a lot of hard work. And I decided that would be the formula for my life, and that took me into public service. And what was it about politics that drew you in? You, you talked there, you, talk, you spoke about how uh, you want to make the biggest impact. Uh, some people might say going to a nonprofit organization, doing it that way might give a little bit more of an impact, but you decided politics. What was it about politics that drew you to it? I've done a lot of not-for-profit work in my life, and uh, before I went into politics, I was, um, I've been quite an activist at 14, 15. Um, when I came out in Montreal, I, I went down to the, the downtown Y and I think established my mid-teens, one of the first gay, lesbian youth groups, transgender groups in Canada. At that time, was, it, this was in, when I was in high school in the 1970s. This was a very controversial thing. There were no out gay people in public life at that point. Um, I did, couldn't find another gay, lesbian group, and I felt unsafe. And the only place you had to go was bars uh, that you could actually meet someone. So if you're a 15-year-old, that's a bit of a problem. Um, and... So I didn't really think of it as politics. I've, from that point on in my life, I just started doing things that I thought would make a difference. Um, you know, I got involved in student politics in university, uh, organized student strikes in Quebec to keep avoid tuition increases. And one thing led to another. And then in my 20s, I, I, I had you know, got through university and then had had the big had the student loans and the debt, and uh, started working for Canada Post Corporation, um, and uh, in their philatelic stamp special events unit. And I, I, I really, I had a very homophobic boss. Someone called my landlord, got me kicked out of my apartment. I, I dealt with a lot of homophobic abuse through that period of time. Um, that brought me to Winnipeg, and. Um, continuing work in AIDS and building some of the first AIDS organizations in Canada, Village Clinic here in Winnipeg, Winnipeg Action Committee, the Buddy Support Network, and eventually the Canadian AIDS Society, and then internationally with the Global Program on AIDS. Um, and so that, that AIDS activism and owning a small business in one of the local main streets in the neighborhood I live in got me very involved in city government, which was the city government wasn't allowing condom distribution or condom education. You had counselors talking about quarantine gay people. Um, and, the, and the neighborhoods I lived in were, the main streets were in serious decline. So I, I ended up, my first interest was just very frustrated about the conditions in the neighborhood I was living in, both for residents and for businesses. And so I joined the coalition and ran for city council and, and you know, started organizing in 1988. Um, and that led me into politics. So it wasn't really like I decided to become a politician. I just realized that on the health, AIDS, and the housing, neighborhood, main streets, transit, all the things that mattered to me, it was a city government and it was being a city councillor where, where I could make a difference, where I could affect change in those areas. And getting into politics and then leaving politics and getting back into politics, I've never, I've just seen politics as an act of public service. So I've entered it and left it based on sort of a, 
a change in jobs, but not a change in the work I'm doing. So I was always kept on working on things. And there were times when I would say, geez, the people in government would only do this, you know, things would be better. So I'd go in government, I'd go and create change there. And then I'd be in government and go, well, people outside of government would only do this. And then I will, I'm going to go outside of government and do that. So it, it was never really, it was never really a conscious thing about being in politics or not being in politics. Now, uh, I've watched interviews with you. I've read uh, your speeches. I, I know you from back in Ontario during my time covering politics back there. Now I moved out to Alberta. So I, I, I've gotten to know you a bit, but I, I, would you consider yourself a progressive? Oh, I hate labels. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I have very strong beliefs and I, I think I'm a very values-based person, but I, I, I find the labels are so ridiculous. Like when I was young in Quebec, I was active in the NDP because I really thought the world of Tommy Douglas. I believed in his social justice mission. I believed in standing up to the War Measures Act, his commitment to civil liberties. And the only place at that time that gay people, when I was a teenager, could even have an inkling of a chance of participating in the political process was through that one political party. I mean, today the NDP is, you know, in many places, a very different kind of party. Do you know what I mean? In, in Manitoba, it was a very conservative party. I, I think I was, all parties are different from when they were back in oh the yeah, 70s. I mean, you know, like, like <laughs> Howard Pauley was an incredible progressive in the sense of that. Gary Dewar was a conservative uh, for all intents and purposes in very... Um, uh, a lovely man, but just not someone who was had much of a change agenda on social progress. And it was, uh, I was mayor when he was premier. And you know, when you're when you're mayor of the city that represents that three quarters of the population of your province, creates an interesting relationship with the premier. Um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, so I, I don't think of it that way. I, I think you know Thomas Mulcair, provincial liberal environment minister, federal NDP leader, Bob Ray, NDP premier, um, you know, liberal leader. Uh, you know, you look at the tensions between the NDP and Alberta and British Columbia, you see, and federally, you see very different ideas about what being a new Democrat or a social Democrat is. I mean, the liberals in, in BC are, are hard to define as liberals. So I, 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 just, I find the partisan labels ridiculous. I was very aligned with Dalton McGinty and Kathleen Wynne on things like universal uh, um, living wage or what we call the, the Green Party, we call um, the um, guaranteed livable income. Uh, those were things that were consistent, uh, massive investments in, in electric, electrification of transportation, uh, carbon pricing system that saw Ontario get the deepest reductions in greenhouse gas emissions in the Americas. Um, all of those kinds of things were things that were consistent with what my, my municipal career, my provincial career. And if you look around now in Canada, the only party with, that's actually standing up for those things are the federal Greens at the federal level. So, I mean, it would be very hard given the agendas of the Liberals and Conservatives and the NDP for me to join those parties because I just fundamentally have too many disagreements with them. And, I, my, and my views haven't changed since I was there on the environment, the economy, and social justice, uh, the need for massive social reform, confronting racism and homophobia and restructuring policing. All of those things have been part of my DNA for 30 years. Trying to find a political home with that agenda has never been easy. So I, yes, I guess those are progressive things, but I, I'm a real fiscal conservative. I, I cut taxes by 10% when I was mayor of Winnipeg. I cut the debt in half, took the credit rating from um, A minus to double A positive from one of the worst of any city, one of the worst of any government. So I don't fit, 
I, I, you know, I, I think people should pay attention to what people believe and what they're saying and not slap labels on people. So I, I think that's a good uh, starting off point here is most people will know you as the environment minister for Ontario, but they don't really know from your days in uh, Winnipeg. So were you a environmentalist in, uh, or I know you don't like labels, but did you have green initiatives in Winnipeg while you were mayor? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I have nine years on city council, three terms at <laughs> six ter- six years and two terms in the mayor's office, and I always limit myself. I always find my on ramp and my off ramp every time I go into politics. Um, yeah, no, it was it, you know we massive. In, I mean, we had a city with no rapid transit. I introduced rapid transit. I introduced citywide recycling. Uh, I closed most of the landfills and consolidated them. I introduced. Uh, the most aggressive social housing infill program, 6,000 affordable housing units filled at a time when there was no federal or provincial money for housing. It was all community-based partnerships. Um, I introduced, um, along simultaneously with Saskatoon, um, land treaty entitlements for Indigenous people. So Indigenous people could create reserves and have sovereign land within the city and and and, and as part of their treaty settlement, it's expression for this, their... Um, um, so, so yes, absolutely. Uh, I, 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 the only thing I ever lost the you know, vote was to go to user pay garbage, um, uh, which I really thought I had one counselor who turtled on me at the last minute, but, uh, uh, no, yeah. And I'm introduced, I worked, um, I put a challenge up to the community to develop a transformative, transformative cultural institution and worked with Izzy Asper on the building of the Canadian Museum for Human Rights and broke a long standing federal position that national institutions and museum and cultural institutions could only be in the capital region. Um, introduced a major waterfront redevelopment and sustainability, brought colleges back downtown, introduced a concept of standards of complete communities and walkable neighborhoods in a city that has struggled with sprawl, introduced the first immigration refugee agreement for a municipality that targeted um, uh, named and unnamed refugees, a city that had been losing about 3,000 people per year, would be many of them to Alberta because the oil boom was going on during that period of time. Um, uh, new convention center, like the foundation for that, downtown arena and entertainment complex, a new airport. Uh, lots of lots of stuff, a real renewal, uh, doubled arts and culture funding, um, introduced new festivals into the city, believing that culture regenerates cities and did some very interesting things because the city had half of the social assistant role, roles were on the municipal uh, bill. And I introduced um, a deal with the then federal conservative government actually early on um, when I was chair of the planning committee, um, a, a program that allowed people on social assistance to carry their benefits into their job. And then eventually social assistance was taken back by the province and that disappeared. But it was the first attempt to bridge people on social assistance and people who were working poor ways to get back into the economy. So, I mean, those kinds of things are, I don't know how they fit into left, right. I mean, Hugh Siegel, who's a conservative, has advocated for a minimum income for Canadians for 50 years. Um, You know, it's, I, I, I think we I think we pay too much attention to labels. Um, I, I think there's a lot of we, we're we're overly indulgent in identity politics in all different kinds of ways, and we live in our own echo chambers and bu- bubbles and only talk to, about people who agree with us who ha- accept the same labels on that. So, I, I, I that's one of the reasons I like about the, the Green Party is it 
it busts, it does a lot of label busting. If you look at the leadership candidates, they go from right to left and everything. For me, the most important thing is the difference between a linear economy and a circular economy. That's right now, given the crisis we face, the most important defining difference between political perspectives. If you believe in a circular economy, uh, we have a chance at survival. If you're still wedded to a linear economy, whether you're on the left or the right, um, you're going to create, a, we're not going to survive. Well, I have a lot to unpack there because you've just opened <laughs> up a can of worms for everything I basically want to talk about. Okay, um, well, there's, but there's the agenda. We, we, will, <laughs> we are going to get into policy in the last half hour of the show, but for the first bit, we will talk about the Green Party. Um, okay. In the 2019 election, in every election I've covered since, uh, well, every election I've been a, a part of or been uh, privy to take part of, uh, I've seen the Green Party do extremely well at the beginning of every election. They poll extremely well. People want to vote for the Green Party. By the end of the election, people start strategic voting. They don't want one party against another. Mm-hmm. How would a Glenn Murray Green Party keep those voters and get them to vote for the Green Party and stay with them from point A to point B? Well, <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a few things there. Um, yep. <laughs> I just want to unpack some of the things you said because I, I think strategic voting is a huge problem for the Greens. Um, I live in a riding that's a tilt liberal conservative riding. Um, you know, in the last election, a lot of people voted liberal defensively to block the conservatives because of their more radical socially conservative agenda of the, of the Andrew Scheer types and of uh, their very weak policies on the environment. Um, and so people voted, held their nose and voted for the liberal incumbent in some ways. Some people obviously voted enthusiastically for, for the gentleman. Um, but the, that, so, so that is very real. I don't deny that. But the other problem is I, I thought the Greens did not run a good campaign. They started off reasonably well. There were huge expectations. There was Greta Thunberg. There was this whole wave around climate change. Uh, if you couldn't, it was one of the best chances we had to have a major breakthrough when we had a minor breakthrough. We doubled our vote, but we only picked up three seats. Um, and halfway through the campaign, our message got confusing. Um, it was really clear that the structure for decision-making in the party wasn't lending itself to uh, any kind of maturity or discipline. Um, and um, we got caught out on issues like abortion and, th- and just went into uh, down a whole bunch of rabbit holes and lost their message. And when you're a smaller party, you, discipline and focus is really important. Having, you know, a small number of clear resonant messages that live in the middle of people's lives and are, are accessible to them and mature parties have that kind of discipline. The Greens have not, and they didn't in the last election. The NDP halfway through the election after the blackface issue picked that up. Jagmeet Singh was completely confronted with uh, a racist issue and he handled it with grace and elegance, I thought. And uh, even though they lost half their seats and their vote went way down, they came out looking better at the end of the campaign than the Greens who doubled their vote. So politics and perceptions are cruel. So how do you fight that? How do you fight incumbent parties that have large uh, infrastructure organizations, monies, and lists, uh, and, and, and can basically pull it together in a 28-day campaign? Well, if you have lots of members and you have lots of patients and lots of good ideas and lots of volunteers, what you do have on your side is time. So the way I would approach it, I would take 50 seats. We, we did double-digit numbers in 49. Uh, I, I'm working to attract some fairly... Um, high-profile candidates as well to the Green Party, people who have 
been sort of naturally greens, but never card carrying greens. Um, and I would start right away. I would get those 50 candidates nominated. We call it the first 50 strategy. We would, I would not run for a seat in parliament for the first year or two, however long we have it for the next election. Uh, I would campaign and build grassroots organizations and mobilize in those 50 seats. Have the MP, our, our candidate for member of parliament, those seats be basically the shadow MP and organize uh, and, and get more involved in leading community-based initiatives and organizations and building up a capacity so uh, or the political capacity of the party so that by the time a year or two from now, when the party is facing an election and the writs are dropped, we're already well, well lined, we're, we're well aligned in 50 seats at least to have a pretty good shot at winning those 50. So I, so I think- Are those 50 the- in all provinces, sorry? Yeah, you'd have to you'd have to have uh, you'd have to have seats in all provinces. I think um, there'd be obviously concentrations greater in certain areas. I mean, we've had breakthroughs in Prince Edward Island. Malapak would be a seat. Uh, we won Fredericton. There's two other seats in Fredericton. Uh, in Quebec, um, I have friends that are running who are considered running who are fairly high profile Quebecers. Uh, there likely be seats in Montreal and. Uh, possibly Quebec City. Um, in Ontario, uh, I have deep roots in downtown Toronto. I won my seat there with one of the largest pluralities in the province with by about 31,000 seats. So the Toronto, central Toronto area obviously would be an area. Um, we did very well. We placed uh, you know, strong seconds in places like um, uh, Guelph and Kitchener, Waterloo. Um, so there's a there, there are seats there. Winnipeg, obviously, where I was mayor and have deep roots. Uh, there would be some seats. Alberta and Saskatchewan are, quite frankly, a bit more of a challenge. But um, you'd, you you you'd want to pick your. I mean, there's some pretty pretty enlightened green voters in those provinces. So you you'd probably start with a smaller number of seats in Alberta and that, and BC has, you know, is, a, is an area that has been very good for the Green Party. Um, so there's, uh, there's, there'll probably be a disproportionate number of those seats just simply because the math would take it. But how we would design those seats would be a process within the party with, and, and coordinating with our provincial parties who have had some, some significant breakthroughs as well. So we, uh, as the Alberta podcast, I, I got to talk about what you just said. It's harder to connect to Albertans because we traditionally, and I, I'm not one of them, have the conservative mindset that oil sands is good. Uh, we need energy. Our, the energy industry has been the backbone of the Alberta economy for decades and decades. So how does a Green Party connect with Alberta and Saskatchewan voters? Because as the leader of a federal party, you are going to have to connect with all Canadians. It's not just Canadians that agree with you, but all Canadians. Yeah, I think it's very hard because I think uh, culture is one of the most powerful thing in politics and people take on narratives and identity and then things, things and issues, oil and gas become, um, become uh, culturally iconic and they become belief-based, not idea-based. And then you can't, people hold on to things and to be members of the club, to be acceptably political, you have to accept certain values and certain beliefs. Um, I, I lived in Calgary for a couple of years. I was the executive director of the Pemina Institute. Um, it was an interesting experience because Pemina is a very moderate organization that tries to bring people together. And as the country was getting into uh, polarizing around these issues and it became part of the right-left culture war that was going on in the country, it was very hard to find common ground. 
Um, and we did a lot of work around language. Uh, we did a whole outreach. We brought say, a conservative uh, from the UK who works on language and bridges. We did some very, just to get people to find language they could talk to each other without overcharge. Very hard thing. Uh, I don't expect uh, it's going to be easy to have a breakthrough in Saskatchewan or Alberta. But I think how you talk about it is important. I would never use words like oil is debt. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that divides and I think it alienates people. And I think when a lot of people um, across the country have businesses that are closed and mothballed, using that kind of language does not, does not bridge differences. It um, creates division. The way I always talk about it is that Alberta could have an energy economy, but it really has more of an oil and gas economy. And there's a difference. Energy, oil and gas is an increasingly smaller subset over time of an energy economy. And I think one of the things that all Canadians have to realize is that what happened in Alberta the last 30, 40 years was a miraculous transformation. Extracting bitumen from sand mobilizing billions and billions and billions of dollars in private and public capital from both Canadian and international sources, unprecedented cooperation between the Alberta government and the federal government, even the Ontario government massively invested in the oil sands when there was a need for capital. Canadian governments came together to mobilize capital, uh, uh, talent, and deploy a new technology that previously had not been used anywhere else in the world, and over 30 years built an incredible energy, energy infrastructure and industry that became one of Canada's largest and most important exports and generated a huge amount of wealth for Canadians. How could you not be anything but proud of that, right? And we should be, and Canadians should find that an inspiring story. The challenge is right now, methane and greenhouse gas emissions and carbon dioxide are destroying our planet, destroying the very beautiful ecosystems of Alberta, our forests. Um, you know, we've seen the extremes of what can happen in Australia when over 20, 23, 22% that uh, we wouldn't, that is very much at risk. We've certainly seen very severe forest fires uh, and droughts in Western Canada floods. So the message is we've done it once, we can do it again. We just have to do this on a new energy platform. You know, we have to transition out quickly of oil and gas. We will still need oil because a lot of the green technologies require oil in their production, in both the materials and in the production of them. So how do, you, how do we, over the next 20 or 30 years, repeat on a clean, renewable, and diverse energy platform what Alberta did in the last 30 years? How we have to make the same commitment to Alberta, Albertans and Canadians in this new energy transition that we made in the 1960s and 70s to Albertans and Canadians when the oil sands were developed. So let's change the conversation. Why would we as Canadians care really about what the nature or the materials or the fuels that fuel our economy are? What we want is the very cleanest, best, and most efficient fuels possible. At one time, that was oil and gas. That is not true anymore. The consequences of oil and gas are developed. So if we can't move to being smart and agnostic about that, if we're going to attach values to a fuel source, then something's very wrong. If we put that ahead of our own environmental and economic well-being and our prosperity, then we have a problem. 
And I think there's been a colossal failure of political leadership to actually create an inclusive narrative. I think I can do that. I don't think it's going to win us a single seat in Alberta. <laughs> maybe one or two. Maybe one or two. I'll, I'll hold out for one or two. Well, but if I'm not more- mistaken, and I apologize for interrupting, that the um, <clears throat> in 2000, I think it was 2010 or 2011, uh, the by-election in Calgary Centre, uh, mm-hmm. riding just close to here, the Green Party came in third. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We, there's some hope there. Chris, maybe you'll be our candidate. You'll get bored of being a journalist or maybe your partner will. My, will my, my, my partner's days of uh, politics is done. He was the uh, NDP uh, tourism and culture minister and I, my days yes, of politics is done too. So Very, very fine man with great public service values and commitment. You, I, I'm sure you're very proud of him as many of us are. Yes. Um, um, but <laughs> I, I always say never say never, but, but no, there, exactly. there's, there's and, and you know he and and what Rachel Notley did was 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 somewhat surprising. So we have to have some hope there. But but I, I think right now with Albertans, if we get a benefit of seats, that's great. I think the reality is we have to change the conversation and we have to build a bigger tent and we have to, we have to we have to actually have a conversation about Alberta's energy economy. Jason Kenney loves to make that synonymous with oil and gas. It simply is not. And, and, you know, and, and, and what's going to decide the future of oil and gas isn't likely going to be politics. It's going to be markets and capital. There is the market for Canadian oil and gas and bitumen extracted oil and gas because it's so expensive and requires a high price threshold is disappearing. I mean, it started with the Iranian-Russian uh, fight. Um, the... Um, fracking of shale gas and oil in the United States has brought in a very highly polluting oil and gas, but one at an incredibly low price in the United States, where the, in the country that owns much of the most of the refining capacity in North America, we're not likely going to compete with that. Uh, the argument that natural gas is offsetting coal in China is a ridiculous argument because China is building more coal plants in Southeast Asia now than they ever have been. So, I mean, this, that, and the most investors are divesting of uh, carbon liabilities. They just simply aren't prepared to carry the environmental liabilities and you're seeing that over and over again. So regardless of politics, regardless of all of the blame that goes on between Ottawa and Edmonton over whose fault it is that, you know, tech isn't doing this or that investment isn't happening. The reality is, is capital is very scarce for that type of oil and gas investment and that markets are getting scarce and nothing in the world is going, going to change that. And all the major forces in the world are going to reinforce that. So regardless of what your politics are, you, you know, the difference, the difference between vision and hallucination is not grasping reality. There's a lot of hallucination and not a lot of vision. And what we need is vision. We need reality-based energy policy for Canada, including Alberta. And, and we're a wealthy, stable country that can provide that leadership and that transformation because the opportunities for Calgary and for Edmonton and for the entire province, I think, are enormous if we can get to a reality-based energy policy. Now, one of the issues that when, when, I, when I go out and talk to Calgarians, Edmontonians, even from the rural communities that I've lived in here in Alberta, uh, one thing that I hear over and over again is, and this is their words, not mine, so please don't say that, that I'm, say, I'm putting words in my mouth, um, the climate change uh, 
scare tactic that uh, the Green Party, the liberals are saying, has been around for 20, 30 years. We say that we need to do something now. We need, we need to do something now because 10 years from now, it's, we're going to be in a cr- catastrophe. But they will look at reports from the 80s, from the 90s, from the early 2000s, and scientists will be saying the exact same thing. Why now is it so important to get our green energy up and running and our emissions under control? Well, I don't think the science has changed, nor have the time frames. I mean, Steve, Stephen Hawking, who's hardly a Birkenstock to- wearing tofu, you know, music festival going hippie, uh, said the probability in his last essay of human life on this planet by 2100 is looking very grim. And he said if human beings are trying to turn their planet into looking more like Venus and Earth, they're on the right track. Uh, Stephen Hawking, trapped in his body, was arguably the greatest optimist of the 20th century. Um, The science is slow grinding. It's a slow boring of hard wood. Uh, The level of plastics in the ocean is reaching unprecedented thresholds. The acidification of our oceans has been happening through this entire period of time without notice. I go on vacation sometimes, you know, I go dive in the Pacific Ocean. It's beautiful. What's the problem? I don't notice anything. You know, weather hasn't dramatically changed yet. But um, we know that uh, we're within 20 years of the boreal forest being 8 degrees Celsius warmer than in winter than it is right now. At that point, the, the fires that we saw in places like Fort McMurray and the floods that Calgary had are going to be small potatoes. We're going to be looking at Australia-level fires in Canada, the complete destruction of some of the largest, uh, most important carbon sinks that absorb carbon dioxide. This is a slow-building cumulative effect, so it's very hard to understand that. COVID-19, we can understand because it's a virus. We have pictures of it, and God knows they love to show pictures of it so we can see what that little monster looks like. Uh, And and it's immediate, and it's disease-based, and the threat is real and tangible. Uh, Climate change is the exact opposite kind of threat, and for that reason, it's more complicated because it's not just climate change, it's climate change. That we're, we're, the, the level that just alone, which the Amazon is now being destroyed is unprecedented under this government in Brazil. So when we actually get to the symptoms of this and the, and the illness, if I can put it that way, becomes so visible that it's undeniable, it's, it's, it's pretty much too late. And this is the great challenge with climate change is that it is incremental, cumulative, and then you get to tipping points of no return. Since 2006 in Canada, the boreal forest, which is 54% of the surface area of our country, has been a net carbon source, no longer a carbon sink. So it now emits more carbon dioxide and methane than it absorbs. No one noticed that. It was hugely consequential to our survival on the planet, but it was quiet, it was silent, and Absolutely tragic. And over the next 10, 20 years, climate change affects microbial life dramatically, bacteria and viruses. Um, we have had since AIDS increasing numbers of zoological pandemics. AIDS jumped from primates to humans. This was bats. The other ones have been mostly avian bird to humans. That is a climate-related event. You know, a one in 900 year drought in Syria, 8.6 million refugees changed politics in Europe for the worse 
right? Created horrible destabilization and food shortages. Imagine that happening in Mexico. What's the next big climate event likely? A massive Syrian level one in 900 year, five or six year drought in Mexico where Mexicans can't feed their children. There's not enough water. They're going to look north as Syrians did to try and find water and secure food and food security. And Parents will walk through bullets to find food and water for their kids. These are the kinds of events that we're facing down and will show up. But do you really want to solve the climate problem with a Donald Trump in the White House, with a weaponized border, and Mexico with a food and water security and a food problem? Because 70% of our vegetables right now come from California, and California is having huge water source issues, which will affect our food security. So we're going to experience climate change is a food and water issue and a fire issue first. And, 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 and the cost of the economy is huge. The cost of the economy of major health and, and ecological environmental disasters is huge. Nothing we've ever experienced has had the kind of economic damage that COVID has. And COVID is a good indicator of the level of disruption we're going to experience in this century if we don't get ahead of this. So, Either we can have an honest conversation and politicians can stop lying to Canadians about the science because they all know it. They were all briefed. Any cabinet minister has had Canada's leading scientists in telling them what's happening. And they're just simply lying, if I can say that. There's too many people not telling the truth to Canadians about climate change. And that's why it's a debate, because one side is not accepting science. I really would, you know, it's like not taking cancer advice from your oncologist. It's just stupid, blatant ignorance. Now, yet again, you've just unpacked a few things, but we are in our second half of the show here. So we're going to turn to my favorite part of the show, policy. I love policy. I'm a policy wonk. I love diving deep into it. But I usually start off with one set of questions, but we'll, we'll keep on going from what you were just talking about. Uh, water. Water is a major uh, source of life for here in Canada. Uh, we talk about how, uh, you just talked about how uh, there's Mexicans who might not have access to clean drinking water, access to water. But here in Canada, we have that today with our Indigenous communities. We have yeah. Indigenous communities and First Nations across this country who do not have access to clean drinking water, which is to my mind, unfathomable and ridiculous that in 2021 or 2020, we don't have it. How would a Green Party address that issue? Well, <laughs> by, by doing what the other parties aren't and acting, because um, it's possible, but there's an embedded racism and resistance in the bureaucracy itself. Uh, I was the environment minister in Ontario who after 50 years of neglect, in the early 1970s, a company called Reed Paper dumped 10 tons of mercury into the Wabagoon, the English River. The result of that was the death and illness of hundreds of people in small indigenous communities, grassy narrows. 50 years, the mercury stayed there. The conservative government of the day indemnified themselves and the company from any legal action. So the people of Grassy Narrows couldn't even sue their own government or the corporation that had pollutant poisoned them and killed them. And for 50 years under liberal NDP and conservative governments, no one did a thing. The federal government did not provide the health center. The, the, the provincial government did not provide the cleanup. The federal government did not provide clean drinking water. And when I took it on, I was 
you know, deputy ministers always often the last thing they say to their minister before he's reassigned, yes, minister, if you want to do that, that would be courageous. Um, so I decided to do the courageous thing with the backing of Kathleen Wynne, who is a remarkable, remarkable leader. And every single day she and I talked about this and every single day she had her hand on my back and it was very clear across government that the premier and the minister were prevailing on this. But it took two years of fighting to get a trust fund, to get the $85 million, to get the research teams, Dr. Rudd and his team out there. And that was a microcosm of it. But it's very hard for any government or any premier to take one issue in one community and every single day that your premier ask a question about it and direct the larger public service because the public service was terrified. They had become implicated by the politicians in 50 years of neglect. Can you imagine being an environmental scientist in the Ministry of the Environment of Ontario and you're, you've been there for 20 years and for 30 years before you came, you inherited this poisoned river that your government was implicated in and prevented people. I mean, it's the huge embarrassment. And the state of neglect and the systemic racism of Indigenous people is so horrible. And our reaction to people simply blocking a rail line, you know, can you imagine if you went into a small town in Alberta, someone poisoned the entire community with mercury and then said to the people of pick a community, Tabor, Lethbridge, you can't sue the company and you can't sue us, the government, you're screwed. Albertans would be out, you know, in their Ford 150s with their gun racks in about a nanosecond, <laughs> closing down the railroad and saying to government, you do that to my family and my farm and my community, I have zero tolerance for it. I mean, Indigenous people, for all the criticism they've gotten, have been incredibly forgiving and tolerant. And it's just unacceptable. So I, I've been through it. I, I'm one of the only Canadians I know who's been an environment minister who, who actually laid down the law. But it was interesting to me because even trying to get enforcement, get my own ministry to enforce it, was very difficult. Dom Tar, there was evidence, was continuing, you know, the successor company, to continue to see leaks. I had environmental inspectors and enforcement officers who wanted to go down and negotiate with the company rather than write them up. And th this was typical in Ontario environmental policy. Tailing ponds, which you know in Alberta are a huge problem, $100 billion plus of liability to Canadians and to Albertans to clean up tailing ponds. Tailing ponds in Ontario didn't even require an environmental assessment. You want to paint lines on a street for a bicycle path in a city, you need an environmental assessment. You want to fill up <laughs> several <laughs> dozen acres of land with toxic waste um, and liquid form, you don't need an environmental assessment in Ontario. Like, so, you know, and, and, and part of that is Indigenous people have to live adjacent to and amongst the most polluted lands with the higher level of risks. So stop it. I'm someone who had enough, drew a line in the sand and stopped it. And I believe the only party that's got the guts to start doing that is the Green Party. That's, that's what I think it is. But it's simply... You're going to have to stare down the federal bureaucracy because the federal bureaucracy is as has been as implicated in the neglect as the politicians who led them to that neglect over decades. And it's going to take a new force from outside to go in and clean house. Do you think Canadian, uh, the Canadian government has failed our First Nations and, and Indigenous communities? Oh, absolutely. How do we rectify that? By electing people who have had enough 
who are impatient, who want the change and aren't going to perpetuate this, this duplicitous two-faced approach of rhetoric that's progressive and actions that continue to be neglectful. It's not just about reconciliation. It's about reparations. Reparations. And when I, and when I say ahead. reparations, I mean, like, you cannot reconcile, as you pointed out, Chris, if you, if, if you can't have clean water for your kids. It's pretty hard to start a conversation. You can't have... You have to have reparations. What I described with what happened in Grassy Narrows wasn't just reconciliation. Matter of fact, it was more rep The reparations were the precondition for reconciliation. Unless I clean up the mercury, get you the healthcare system, and get you clean drinking water, repair what has been broken, it is really hard to reconcile. You know, it's important to recognize whose traditional lands we're on. But I have a lot of indigenous friends who when they hear politicians saying we're on the traditional lands of treaty three treaty nine pick the pick the treaty and they don't do anything i'm often standing at the back of the room with someone who says well then just give us our land back you know like either take care of it do it but just changing the rec or the rhetoric without changing the action without doing enough to get people healthy again and restore traditional life is just not good enough do you believe that we should overturn the Indian Act? I, 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 I think this is, it's really easy to knee jerk to, to simplistic solutions. The question is, we need a five-year transition period. Okay, and, and because the, with, the question with, with I want to ask, oh, go ahead. Uh, that would dismantle the Indian Act, restore our respectful sovereignty between First Nations and the government and the crown and work very hard to improve the health and well-being of indigenous people in our cities and the Métis Nation. It is, the, the, and, the, and the Inuit uh, are, all have different cultures and there's different complexity. Well, well, New Zealand is hardly a utopia. The constructs in which the New Zealand government and the current New Zealand government is taking, has taken and is now taking to another level. Uh, with Indigenous people with the Maori is really important. That kind of model of governance that is built as much in the traditions of the original people as it is in the, in the people who came and colonized the country a couple of hundred years ago is important. And that kind of larger conversation is to me essential in Canada. Um, and that we have the humility to understand the sustainability and the integrity of uh, indigenous culture that treats nature and other human beings as our relations and as sacred from the birth water stories. If we treated water with the reverence that indigenous people did, we would not be having a lot of the problems we're having right now with our water supply and food security. Perfect. Uh, we are running out of time, so I, I do have two other topics that I want to talk about is rural communities. You have, mm -hmm. uh, you, in our conversation so far, you have said that you, you represent, well, you've represented Winnipeg as a mayor, you've represented Toronto Centre, downtown Toronto. How do you connect with rural communities across Canada? How does a kid from Montreal who grew up in Winnipeg, who was a politician in Toronto, connect with voters in Tabor, Alberta, in uh, uh, Sudbury, Ontario, in uh, rural New Brunswick. Well, the Green Party is doing quite well about it. I mean, I, this is again identity politics. You know, how does a gay guy who was from downtown Winnipeg um, 
you know, who's, who was most known for running clean needle exchange programs for people who were street involved, end up becoming the mayor who gets, turns the credit rating problems in the city around, cuts debt in half and cuts taxes, and overwhelmingly wins a suburban vote. By, by getting away from the stupidity of labels, I didn't have an accounting degree, I didn't have a finance background, but I, I think when you look at the history of municipal finance in Canada, certainly in Western Canada, what Winnipeg did was viewed by the bond rating agencies as a major turnaround. So um, <laughs> all of us who have been left outside the mainstream and anyone who's gay who grew up in the generation I grew up in, who had life threats, uh, who, who went through violence, job loss, kicked out of apartments, knows what it's like to be marginalized. Um, what's happened in rural Canada uh, in the last 40, 50, 60 years. I mean, if you go back three generations um, to our grandparents' generation, one out of two people worked in food production in Canada. Today, that's about 2%. There's been a huge shift in population and power from rural and small communities, and not just into cities, into a complete agglomeration in Toronto. And it's true in many Western democracies. London, you look at where 70, 80% of GDP growth is in one large urban region. And the small and mid-sized cities, the Winnipeg's as much as, you know, the uh, Lusamans are having these challenges. So which I believe we need a national settlement strategy. We need to use the internet. We need to build a high-speed electric rail system across this country, uh, our national dream 2.0, to be to create the transportation, electric high-speed transportation connections that would allow for population redistribution and restoration of population back to cities. I mean, Winnipeg has a water supply for three times its population. London, Ontario has universities and education capacity while people in the GTA very close by are, are, are sending their kids to school in trailers. I mean, we, we need a national transportation and settlement strategy that rebuilds our mid-sized and rural communities and that we don't even have a twinned national highway you know, I mean, I was always working with the mayor of Thunder Bay when I was mayor of Winnipeg because all those communities across our north, everyone goes south, south of the Great Lakes because the highways are all divided and twinned. Do you know what I mean? Like we haven't even built the connections between our country. We have massively underdeveloped infrastructure. We don't have, I mean, getting a national museum in Winnipeg was huge. Most regions should have national cultural institutions because only 20% of Canadians ever go to Ottawa to see the war museum and to see the, the, the museum of civilization and all the other stuff that we have there. I mean, we need to, to start a national settlement strategy with both our immigration and our transportation that allows for the connectivity and the mobility. High-speed rail, for example, from Calgary to Edmonton. Winnipeg, we don't need a lot more cities over a million people. The, the best-sized cities and the large city category, not, not saying the smaller communities are problematic and quite the opposite, is between 500,000 and a million people. So, I mean, better to grow Brandon and better to grow Red Deer. If you do high-speed rail between Calgary and Edmonton with Red Deer as a single stop, and you start to build Red Deer as the third city uh, in that, you do the same with Montreal and Toronto, uh, and you focus on Kingston. To, you know, you're going to have a much healthier, more economical, stronger economy if you're not supersizing downtown Toronto. Um, so I have that kind of experience. I have that kind of background and I'm prepared to lead a party that's prepared to build the kind of infrastructure and bring in a settlement strategy that will help regional economic development across the country. 
Now, the reason I wanted to talk about rural communities as well, and that's great that we, you, you, you answered about 12 questions I had about transportation, so we'll knock those off. Um, but rural communities are usually hardest hit when it comes to green initiatives. We saw with Justin Trudeau announcing the carbon uh, tax or carbon levy, sorry, um, that uh, rural communities, you would have to get your food shipped up there, which would cost more because of higher uh, prices for shipping. So usually uh, rural communities, smaller communities, remote communities are hardest hit. How are you going to ensure that the communities that are hardest hit with potential increase of a carbon tax, carbon levy, would be subsidized by uh, refund and taxes, more uh, funding from the federal government? How is that going to work under a green uh, leader of Glenn Murray? Well, I, I believe in cap and trade, not taxes. I believe in market mechanisms, which should philosophically be better aligned with Alberta's worldview because the cap and trade system between Quebec, Ontario, and California actually reduced greenhouse gas emissions. No one's come close to Ontario. I mean, and when Doug Ford canceled it, he didn't cancel the tax. There was no tax to cancel. He canceled the cap and trade system. I don't think the federal tax is working and you'd have to raise it so high that no politician, and you just have to look at BC, the party that introduced it couldn't raise it. Um, so you've got a problem there. The taxes, I don't think carbon taxes work. Carbon pricing is important. I believe in market mechanisms for the same reason that you have to distribute capital and technology into new Canadian based uh, industries switching materials to recovered materials from ver extracted resources. There's a whole transition that has to take place that a market mechanism does. But where we've left it too long, Chris, we actually have to take, go on almost a similar footing we went to in World War II, where we built the world's third largest Navy in about three years. We built an industrial complex to produce airplanes and tanks that was just done by sheer force of will. You see, ironically, Donald Trump redirecting production in the United States to create ventilators and equipment for hospitals and facilities that were making cars. That's what happened in the Second World War. We have to build an electric platform. We have to modernize uh, and electrify our transportation systems. We have to retrofit every building to passive building systems, uh, heat pumps, geothermal systems. We, and that would be one of the biggest job creation um, opportunities we've ever had. It would create more jobs and it would create huge jobs in Alberta because these technologies and building materials are very much uh, very big parts of the Calgary and Winnipeg and Western Canadian economy. So there's a huge opportunity if you do that. What you also come out with is much higher productive transportation that uses less energy and less resources and buildings that actually generate more of their own heating and cooling than they require. So in Barrie, you've got a 700 house subdivision in Barrie, Ontario, which is very popular because when you buy the house, you get no heating bill, you get no cooling bill, and you get no electrical bill because the passive building envelope systems, solar panels and geothermal systems in the building mean the building generates its own energy, heating and cooling. And so, and we're gonna to go to a redistributive energy system. People are gonna be wanted to be unchained from large central natural gas and other distribution systems. People are gonna to wanna to control their own heating and cooling and that, and they're gonna want a sustainable system. And especially that's also important given when you have ice storms and things like that, and power lines come down. If you have a redistributed energy system, you have one that's more resilient to the kinds of climate and weather events that we're going to see. That is 
fits very well into the culture of Western Canadians because most of us, you know, originally grew up on farms and quarter sections where we had to take care of ourselves. So, I mean, much of this new transformation is a high employment, high prosperity economy where we detach our every unit of economic growth happens using less energy and less resources. That's a high efficiency economy. So a circular economy is even as much as it's about the environment, it's more about productivity. It's more about relocalizing Canadian investment. It's more about creating jobs. And whether that's in transportation, the electrification of our vehicles or our buildings, that transformation is an incredible restoration of the Canadian economy. It, we, you know, there's $44 billion, I think, in imported oil right now that comes into this country. That would be a huge dividend back if that money was reinvested in Canada rather than exported. I, I think you're right. I, I, I believe in cap and trade. I was very I'm impressed when Kathleen Wynne and yourself did in, introduce it in, in Ontario. So I do appreciate you talking about that. Uh, we have about seven minutes left and I do want to have to touch on one last topic before we do the wrap up here. COVID-19. What would Glenn Murray have done differently if he was prime minister when COVID-19 hit back in February? <laughs> Um, I, I, I would, I mean, I've been saying this for a long time, so I think it's fair because I said this when I was home elected office, is that we are not preparing for the future. We are waiting for bad things to happen and reacting to it. This isn't, it's not about recovering this from COVID-19, just the things I talked about. The same, I mean, if there was no climate change, there was no climate change, or even if you don't believe that climate change is happening, you go back to our early conversation, you should be doing all the things that we're proposing to do because it makes a better, healthier economy. It improves our quality of life. It makes our communities safer, more beautiful places to live, and it makes us all healthier. And it gives us better job, better careers and better choices and greater security. So let's just do it. But we need to be more resilient. We were caught on, I mean, the thing about COVID is people were surprised about it. You know, we had Zeta virus, we've had SARS, we've had AIDS, we've had zoological viruses. We've been warned over and over again, and we've been told, you know, Australia came out of forest fires where, where the air quality was so bad in Sydney and Melbourne, people couldn't go out, really hurt the economy, thinking, okay, that's over. Then they got COVID. If we come out of COVID and we have a summer of forest fires, we're in Calgary, you can't go out for long periods of time and old patios and restaurants are empty. We have to realize that environmental and health issues are going to be more disruptive. So you need to plan for that. You need to plan now. And the biggest thing I would say is let's shift from looking through the rear view mirror into looking out the front windshield and look at where we're going. I... I, I think that one of the things that wasn't paid attention to that we've learned from other pandemics was there are vulnerable people and there are people who are fairly resilient to that. And that one of the things that you have to do is really figure out who is vulnerable, most vulnerable to the most tragic consequences of a pandemic and protect those people. You don't need to overprotect people for whom are fairly resilient to this. And what happened in seniors' homes and with elderly people could have been avoided if more attention was being paid. And we, we didn't start planning for COVID after it was already well underway. So the lesson here is, is pandemics are gonna be part of our future. What is the institutional organizational capacity we have to have in equipment, in healthcare capacity. Because the other thing that's happening right now, my partner's an operating room nurse in Toronto, is you know, tens of thousands of critical surgeries are being canceled. 
People who need life-saving interventions are being bumped out because COVID has closed down much of the capacity and forced our hospitals into isolation. There's a real question right now about how many more people are being harmed by this as being saved by this. And you can have some forgiveness because this came on. But really, um, if we have no plan, if we had an Australia-level forest fire in Canada this summer or next year, we're not ready for that. Why aren't we ready for that? It's a probability. It's somewhere between a possibility and a probability. You know, so we, we are still, we still think it's 1980. Do you know what I mean? Some politicians can't deal with climate change because they still think it's 1980. And we can't deal with the outcomes from it. So what a lot of us in the Greens are saying is get real. You know, my little slogan is today, not tomorrow. We have to get ready for today. We cannot wait for tomorrow anymore. And we have to look at a more sophisticated understanding of our vulnerabilities as human beings by age and demographic and by community. By If you're a farmer or you're a service worker, climate change and the global health crises are going to affect you in different ways. So we need to localize those decisions. We need a comprehensive resilience strategy in this country to deal with health and ecological crises. And if I was leader of the Green Party, one of the first things we would do is we would develop a national settlement strategy and a national resilience strategy to start to anticipate these. So the capacity and the plans are in place before the crisis hits. Now we have two minutes left and through all transparency, I gave, uh, I, I have given this to all the other contenders as well. Uh, you have two minutes, pitch my, pitch yourself. Why should people join the green party of Canada? Why should people take out a membership and why should people support you in the uh, leadership in October? Uh, I've given two minutes. Uh, here's your two minutes to talk to the 832 followers or subscribers to the podcast right now across Canada. Our forests are important, our lakes are important, our economy is important, and our children are important. Climate change, global pandemics, the level of disruption because of human impacts on the planet that we're facing requires immediate action to reverse that decline and that degradation of our ecosystems and our planet and to seize what is the most incredible opportunity for prosperity and for healthier cities and quality of life. I've talked a lot in this podcast with you, Chris, about what some of those things are, how we approach them. We have to do it now. The IPCC says we have a decade to stabilize our climate, to cap emissions, and to start bringing them down. The consequence of being the first generation in human history, not to leave our planet and our country and our community stronger, healthier, more resilient than we inherited from our parents. And those who went through the Great Depression and the Second World War and the Holocaust know what a price you can pay to pass the legacy on. We are not leaving a legacy for our children that is the quality of the inheritance we have for our party. I understand that. I've been elected across the country. I bring an enormous amount of practical experience in the private, public, and not-for-profit. Across the country, I've lived in almost every part of the country. I'm uniquely a Canadian politician with a capacity to deliver change now, the change we need. Glenn, I want to thank you very much for this. Uh, to my listeners, uh, the link to Glenn's e uh, website is in the show notes, and a link to join the Green Party and support Glenn is also in the show notes. Uh, Glenn, I want to take this uh, last minute and say thank you very much for sitting down and doing this today. 
So to you and your partner, Chris, thanks for being proud and out and saying I and we when you talk about gay and lesbian and transgender people as someone who uh, was breaking ground with my friend Michael Fair in the 1980s. Um, is, I, I know what that, uh, what that burden is like and what, what, and, and what that opportunity is like. So thank you very much for what you've done for our community and for Canadians. We both should be very proud. And once again, thank you to our guests for coming in and sitting down today. It was greatly appreciated. As I've said in the introduction, this podcast is about having a conversation. I learned a lot in this interview, and I really hope you did too. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. The links are in the show notes. Or visit our website at www.crossborderinterviews.ca. This podcast is produced and owned by Miranda Brown and Associates. I'm your host, Christopher Brown. Once again, have a safe and hopefully talkative week. Mm-hmm.